Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. Today I'm in conversation with Professor Genevieve Bell, who joins me by phone from the ANU in Canberra, where she's a distinguished professor and director of the Autonomy, Agency and Assurance Institute. Genevieve is a highly regarded cultural anthropologist, technologist and futurist. She's also currently a vice president and senior fellow at Intel. Uh, Genevieve, thanks for having a conversation with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Mark. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your childhood and uh, upbringing. Hardly typical. You spent uh, a good deal of time living uh, in remote Aboriginal communities in Australia. Absolutely. I, you know, I always say I've had an unusual childhood. So I'm the daughter of an anthropologist. Uh, my mother, Diane Bell, uh, was spending most of her time in the 70s and 80s in and out of Central Australia, and so my brother and I were with her. So I spent much of my childhood moving between um, the anthropology departments at places like the Australian National University and then a whole collection of different um, Aboriginal settlements in Central and Northern Australia. So it was um, an extraordinary childhood. I mean, there were periods of time when that meant that I got to be with people on their country telling me stories about that country and showing me it at a kind of a level of, I don't know, a level of grace that I'm not sure I'd ever get to recapture, and it was extraordinary. Do you think when you when you reflect on um, an educational experience which was certainly atypical and lacked the rigidity, had a level of flexibility that that clearly most people don't experience. To what extent did that prepare you for your future academic career and your future thinking about education? <laughs> I feel like I should tell you you're leading the witness there, Mark. Mm. Um, so, listen, for me, I think the the kind of virtue of the set of life experiences I had were that, for me, it's left me both with a deep appreciation of the kind of notion of both theory and practice. So the idea that it's good to understand how things work in theory, it's also good to see how they work in practice and in reality, and I think being able to have those embodied experiences changed the way I read things and it changed the way I thought about things. And one of the pieces for me that was so abundantly clear, both because of that child and, you know, after spending 20 years in Silicon Valley, is that it's really easy to forget that we learn not just through reading and through classrooms, but through experiences of our bodies, right? We are embodied mm. learners as humans. Whether it is the act of doing things or the act of other people responding to what we are doing, there's a kind of a feedback loop there. And learning the way different places work and different rules work and it feels different, for me that's always left me with a kind of an appreciation of both the way, you know, knowledge is built and transmitted but also how we live it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I was incredibly lucky to have that kind of set of encounters as a kid and mum was always really clear that this wasn't um this wasn't without having to think about it, right? She would at the end of almost every day of my childhood ask, What you know, what did you learn today? What surprised you today? And she was very kind of clear about making sure both to drive our curiosity and to help us articulate what was happening around us, not just experience it, but be able to talk about it. And I think those have been invaluable tools sort of that have served me well ever since then. So so you've built a career based around curiosity and asking questions and observing. Um, you know, you, you go from that experience, you, you study in America, you do a PhD at Stanford, uh, you end up at Intel and working in the heart of Silicon Valley. 
tell us um, about the step to to you know to be working <laughs> in such a um, a complex demanding and and possibly an environment not that open and sympathetic to women and or Australians. How did you end up at Intel? Oh, this is a bit where I have to parenthetically say my career is not a good template and nor should I be offering career advice. <laughs> because I went to Stanford, you're right, to do my PhD and my, my research at that point was in Native American studies and I was really interested in the use of education, in fact, as a form of um, both cultural control and cultural transmission. And so I'd studied a boarding school for Native kids in the United States that had operated in the 19th and early 20th century. And so I was a kind of a, an area expert. I'd spent a bunch of time with people who'd been to those schools. That was kind of my focus. Um, and so ending up at Intel was, um, to say the least, unexpected. And I often joke that it's a really long way from Ali Karang to Silicon Valley, even via Stanford. And the reality is I wasn't looking for a job in industry. I wanted to be an academic. I liked the classroom. I liked the rigor of research. I loved teaching. But I was also in Silicon Valley in the 1990s, um, and that was a period of time when we were building out the web, the internet was really kind of scaling up, there was a lot of technological transformation, everyone was kind of in the, the tech world. And I really wasn't, but I knew it was around me, and I I met a man in a bar. I don't know how to put it than that. I met a man in a bar. The bar was called Pearls on Ramona Street in Palo Alto, and he introduced me to people in Silicon Valley. They introduced me to other people. It kind of went on for a bit. There were many free lunches, which when you were a recovering graduate student is excellent. And one day I met the people at Intel, and they offered me a job, and I told them no. I couldn't imagine what I would do for a company like that. And to their credit, they could see a path for me there more than I could, and they pursued me for nearly six months, continuously asking me, you know, would I join the company? I kept going, I don't know what I'd do there. And I think I realized one day in that process, <sighs> the closest uh, non-religious girls like me get to having an epiphany, I think, was that I woke up one morning and realized that, I kept thinking Intel wasn't really a choice and that, in fact, it was a choice and that there was a moment where I could say to myself, what does it mean to be an anthropologist and a social scientist and someone who cares about transformation and change and where should I do that work? Sure, I can apply my trade in the university. I know exactly how to do that. I've been trained for that. But if what I know how to do is ask hard questions and open up conversations and see the world differently, maybe there are other places that need that. And I looked at Intel, and at that point we're talking about 1998. Gosh, it's a long time ago. But, you know, Intel was then as it is now in the business of making microprocessors, and microprocessors were the basically backbone building block of the Internet and the web. So a company like Intel in 1998 was effectively building the future, and it was a company, as you kind of flagged in the question, entirely full of engineers and computer scientists and marketers, and they had this really American-centric view and this really tech-driven view, and I naively and with a great deal of hubris thought to myself, well, okay then. <laughs> if I could make a difference inside of that company, that would actually make a difference at a scale that I couldn't even fantasize about as an academic. And so having said no to them for six months, I called them back and said, when can I start? And because it was Intel and industry, they're like, well, two weeks would be good. And I took a deep breath and quit my academic job and moved states and put all my things in boxes and started a new job in an area I knew nothing about in a city I'd never lived in with people I didn't know. And it was um, uh, it was the smartest decision I think I've ever made. Yeah. One of the, um, I mean, so many fascinating things about uh, Intel as an organization, you know, the work that they've done, the products they've done. Of course, it's, um, you know, the, the origins of Moore's Law, you know, in a sense, and that sense of the, the rapid uh, change and development of and speed of technological change has its uh, origins at Intel. 
but it's also seen as an organisation that has changed itself and changed itself over and over again, reflecting the change that technology has brought. I mean, tell us about being a questioner and a challenger um, within an organisation like Intel. And I suppose I'm looking for parallels back uh, into an education system <laughs> where we can be pretty set in our ways and perhaps we look pretty similar to the way we looked a generation or two ago. I mean, at Intel, you were involved in driving change and thinking through what the future demands are going to be. Yeah, listen, it was fascinating, right? I think one of the things about being a real outsider in circumstances like that is it lets you ask a series of questions that insiders don't even see as questions. Um, and for me, one of the foundational questions actually had to do with the premise on which Intel was founded. You just mentioned it, Moore's Law. So... Intel as a company, one of the things it does is make microprocessors, and one of its founders is a man named Gordon Moore. And way back in 1965, Gordon Moore predicted that transistors, you know, the building blocks of computers, would halve in size and double in density every 18 months to two years and halve in price. That's a big mouthful, but what it basically says is that the guts of computers were going to get much smaller and much faster and much cheaper on a knowable cadence. And if you could hold that law to be true, what it would mean was that technology could evolve quite rapidly, that, you know, each generation of technology could get smaller and more powerful and the price envelope would kind of diminish so that you could have more and more stuff doing more and more things. And that's a kind of, it was a powerful observation that Gordon made back in 1965. At the time, he said it was only last 10 years. It's lasted considerably longer than that. But when I got to Intel, I went, and then what? <laughs> the person I ever said that to looked at me and went, What? I'm like, well, it got hard, it halved in size and doubled in density, and then what did people do with it? <laughs> he just looked at me and said, what kind of question is that? I'm like, um... <laughs> Pretty fundamental question, really. I thought, yeah. I, I, was like, I was like, I think it's a good question. He's like, well, but it'll just do it again in 18 months' time. And I remember thinking, oh, I see. The logic of this company is entirely figured around the system that we build, not what people do with it. And, you know, at that moment in time, I realized that one of my jobs inside the company was always going to be to ask about both the so what and who is actually our audience and not just who is our audience, who are we touching and what is it that we want to have happen in that relationship. And so, I mean, you know, I used to joke that my job was to haunt the company with people and not the people who worked in the company, but the people that would ultimately use our technology or be impacted by it. And so what it meant to drive change there, I think, was to constantly have to ask uncomfortable questions, questions that even as you said them, you didn't sound particularly smart because everyone around you just looked at you. Um, but I think in terms of what it meant to be a, what Americans would have called a change agent at Intel was that you it helped to have a point of view. It helped that point of view was informed by a worldview and for me by a kind of... Um, a moral impulse that the world should be better when I leave it than as I found it, and that that means making it better for more people than myself. And so for me, that meant always asking the question about where is this technology going and what is it doing? And not in a technical sense, but in a social, cultural, human sense. But asking that question often was really risky. It was hard. People didn't always know how to hear that question. They still didn't know how to hear me asking that question. And it meant just kind of being, um, I think, both... A sweet mix of persistent, not patient, but persistent, I think of those as being slightly different things, of persistent and kind of willing to keep thinking that while asking the question was uncomfortable, the consequences of not asking the question were worse. Do you, do you think, as you reflect on it, I suppose I keep you know, bringing it back into a, thinking through a school setting where you've got 
institutions long established, great kind of strength of the status quo, great belief in the work that we're currently doing now. Do you believe that those skills of an anthropologist, you know, asking questions about, you know, why we do the things we do now, what the real meaning is behind what you're seeing happening and what the implications of that are, do you think uh, we underplay and underestimate the importance of those skills just as we're kind of riding along in the daily demands and pressures of um, oh, everyday absolutely. life and work. No, absolutely, Mark. I mean, you know, part of the way institutions maintain themselves is through stability and stasis, right? It's the resistance that change because all the systems, there's a, you know, what economists and public policy people would call a sunk cost. You you know, and they're not things we necessarily think about, right? The way schools are physically built predetermines a whole way about how education can be delivered within them, right? The way the walls are, the way the rooms are sized, the kind of things that are in them, the things that are possible in them, already establish what an education or what the possibilities might be, the possibility space, right? And those are buildings that took often a little while to build. They cost a lot of money. Changing them is hard. We then have faculty who we've hired for particular skills. We've invested time in them. Changing that, similarly difficult. You know, there's pieces that militate towards stability. I think, you know, where the kind of the social scientist in me wants to ask the question is, that's all well and good, but what has changed in the world that we might need to think differently about? You know, what would... What is the time frame on which we're operating, right? I, I You said something... 14 months ago, that has been rattling around in my head ever since. You're standing on a stage in um, the Carriage House in Sydney, and you said, next year we'll be taking students into our primary school, into, you know, first year, and when they graduate, it'll be 2030. And you stood there and you said, I can't afford not to be thinking about what the world looks like in 2030. And I thought to myself, that's an extraordinary statement, that in fact in order to deliver something now, you have to have a point of view about the future. And I think one of the challenges we have in thinking about the future is we often project now out to that. We kind yeah. of go, well, it'll be like this, but, you know, more blinky lights. <laughs> so you know, so let's talk about stuff. that. Uh, let's talk about that, that a bit more. I mean, as you know, and you've uh, really helped our thinking on it, at the department we've been working on this project for education in a changing world. And, you know, the lack of certainty and insight around what that world of, you know, 2032, 2045 looks like. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Um, and so, yeah, it's easy just to sit where you are now and uh, extrapolate a bit rather than really trying to think deeply about uh, the, the, the bets that we want to take or the, the risk that we want to manage as far as preparing young people for that world. I mean, there's one argument that says the rate of change that we've seen, this is an extrapolation of Moore's law, it's, that, that's just going to accelerate further. So how do we think through as educators and those of us involved in leading schools or leading systems, how do we think through uh, bridging that gap of 12 years or 15 years to that future world and think through the things we need to be considering and doing now? Gosh, that must be such a daunting question. I mean, I find it daunting even from where I sit. I'm just trying to imagine what is technically possible. Um, I've always thought there were a couple of things that have to matter in all of that, right? One is that whilst technology changes quite rapidly, there are things about which humans care that change far more slowly. And being able to tell the difference between those things is a critical first step. 
Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between what changes technically and what changes far more slowly culturally and socially? So, you know, mm-hmm. we may have an enormous amount of technology, but humans still like to tell stories. The way we tell them is different than 10, 20, 30 years ago, but we're still storytellers at heart, right? So how do you tell the difference between what the technology propels us to do and the things that we care about over a much longer time period. I mean, I often, you know, joke that I'm a child of the 70s in Australia, so I grew up with, you know, early colour TV. And, you know, my parents' generation are the ones who remember the introduction of television. And, you know, that means TV's, you know, 60 years old, a little more, a little less. We're still arguing about its impact on us. <laughs> it's been around for a while. We're still going, oh, is it good? Is it bad? Should we have more American or less? We're in a golden age of it. All that stuff, right? So imagine if the technology stabilises is probably already a thing we should move past. But if that's the case and the technology doesn't stabilize, the really interesting challenge we have is this one about how do we give people enough tools and enough context around those tools that they can rearrange them where necessary. So rather than saying, here is the sum of all things you need to know in the order in which you will deploy them, is it possible to say, here are a set of questions you can always ask that will help you get somewhere. So rather than thinking it's a problem you need to solve, maybe the approach is to say, what are the questions we should ask? And to me, there's sort of something about how do we start to imagine, there's always going to be a set of tools you're going to need, or at least I'd like to imagine that we we need to have literacy skills and numeracy skills. You will need to be able to work out, you know, how do letters string together into words. Even if, you know, machines are doing an enormous amount of work in the background, we're still going to be able to have to read signs that tell us certain kinds of things and engage with the world through a set of building blocks. The challenge, I think, becomes in a system that is designed to be in increments of six years, 12 years, how do you stage that education in such a way that the pieces can be rearranged later or that the through line is the through line makes it possible to use those tools later. So, I mean, I know that sounds really abstract, but we are in the process here at the Institute of... Um, we have our first students arriving in February of 2019. They will turn up here at the ANU for a brand new master's in a discipline that doesn't yet have a name. <laughs> in an institute that has a mouthful of a name. And my team and I are in the process of trying to build out what does that year worth of curriculum look like. And one of the things we realized that, in fact, what we were doing was giving people a set of critical questions they could ask of almost anything or a set of critical propositions that would let them see the world differently. So what were their framing tools, if you want to think about it that way? Rather than saying, here are the facts you need to know, it was here are the propositions that will help you get to possible facts. And I don't quite know what that looks like in a a, a sort of a second primary and secondary educational system. We sometimes call it critical theory or critical thinking. There's definitely that piece. But that also means how do you get teachers and parents as well as kids comfortable with the idea that what they're learning now is just a piece of the puzzle and not everything. And my suspicion is that's as hard for parents and teachers as it is for kids themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very challenging for both teachers and parents, uh, intimidated by the technology, exploring the technology themselves, and it's all just so incredibly new. I've been reflecting on almost like the last decade of technological development. You know, we love the bright, the shiny, and the new. We sign up, you know, we sign up for online news, we download the apps, we love our phone, uh, we sign up for Netflix, we sign up for Spotify, we give our data to Facebook. But the well, full implication, yeah. Well, only about two billion, you know. Uh, but the implications yeah, but of all that. 
but Mark, I'm going to push you there, right? It's important yeah. not to normalize the experiences you and I have as people who live in big cities with a lot of infrastructure and who have personal yeah. resources. Yeah. So, you know, the whole world isn't on those platforms, even in Australia, and yeah. the experience of even a Facebook or a Netflix if you were in Walgut versus Sydney. Yes, true. Very different things. I, I think that's right. I, I think my um, the thing I'm wrestling with a bit is that in our rush to embrace the new where we can, the full implications of that uh, have only become evident some years after. And so what, you know, what can we learn from our history and our experience? And it's not as though people of you know, my generation have been experienced with these tools. They've been new for us as they've been for everyone. What do we learn from our rush to embrace and how, uh, you know, and, and the consequences that we can see with, the, you know, the global Facebook um, evidence that's come to light in the last year or so. And so how do we prepare young people for that? And I think the answer that I hear from you is it's not trying to provide solutions in a world um, that we, we can't quite anticipate, but what are the robust questioning um, framework that we can develop? How do we help prepare them to critically engage with whatever the circumstances might be that they are dealing with a decade or two from now? And it's not like those are really hard. It's not like those are impossible questions to teach, right? Some of them are really simple, like who built this and where does it come from? Yeah. And, and who what is the, exactly? And what's the world it imagines? And who isn't yeah. in that world? And yeah. why? Like yeah. you know, those are I mean, those are questions we. Know, I mean, they're scientific method questions in some ways. I mean, they're yeah. certainly questions we know how to stage out of history and philosophy and economics. They're questions in sociology and psychology and anthropology. But they are, mm. in fact, you know, the questions out of well, I would have said some of the STEM disciplines too, where you have a hypothesis and data and a test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are the things that say, all right, well, who do we think is making money here and why does that matter? Or where did this come from and does it have built into it a worldview that isn't ours and what are the consequences of that? Mm. And, you know, who might not be in that world? How do we think through um, the STEM question? I mean, there are... There are a myriad of STEM tasks for STEM projects. We have reports come out that talk about declining levels of students doing advanced maths and science in our schools, concerns about participation rates of girls in those subjects. At times, STEM can be seen as a panacea, an answer um, that people uh, advance for some of these questions. I mean, how seriously do you think we should be taking the STEM challenge? And how do you articulate that challenge? Gosh, another interesting and complicated question. Um, I was lucky enough to go to the US for my undergraduate degree, and I was lucky enough to go to amazing state schools in Australia before I left. And for me, both of those educational experiences was about a portfolio of um, content and disciplines that I was exposed to. So I did a lot of STEM stuff in Australia when I was in high school, and I was good at it. I didn't love it, but I was good at it. Um, I went to a liberal arts college in America, university that kind of was a broad-based education, and I did a little bit of everything. Um, it's very clear to me as I've charted out the arc of my career, I have been incredibly well prepared by the fact that I have a little bit of each one of those things. So, mm. you know, I have a basic understanding of how maths works. Um, I have an understanding of how, you know, certain forms of scientific knowledge are produced. I also have an ethnographic imagination, and I know enough about history to be dangerous. <laughs> mm. So for me, the piece is to say, it is absolutely the case that we are going to need 
scientists. We also need engineers. We also need technologists. We also need historians and economists and philosophers and artists and poets. The reality is what any one of those disciplines should look like in the 21st century ought to feel different than it did in the 20th. So we talk about, you know, what is it going to be an engineer? My concern is sometimes when we talk about STEM, we talk about it like it were a stable body of knowledge and we know exactly what we're referring to. My concern when we talk about it too is that we tend to forget that it is most valuable when it is in dialogue with lots of other disciplinary traditions and theories. And then it's not about we should have art in order that art can fuel STEM. It's that, you know, we should have art because it is a different way of seeing the world, a different way of making sense of things, and it will open up possibilities that we need to have in the world. We can't have a world entirely full of engineers and mathematicians. That would be not a good look. Dire. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be Tell dire. Me, uh, be, it just wouldn't be a good look. <laughs> yeah. What about... Um, the gender challenge around STEM participation and engagement? Oh, listen. What's interesting is it's uneven. So if you look, if you if you do a click down on the data about who participates in STEM subjects, remember, you know, we're talking science, technology, engineering, and math. Of course, the complication there is that each one of those things is not really the same as the others. Um, mm. If you look across them, it's uneven. So there may not be as many girls doing physics in year 11 and 12 as there are boys, but by the time you get to university, there are a lot more girls and women doing bioengineering than, say, civil engineering. Um, and so what's fascinating to me is that sitting underneath what appears to be one set of statistics is actually a great deal of variation. We know there are multiple universities around the world that have managed to get full participation from female students, from kids who come from economically disenfranchised backgrounds or different ethnicities and different lived experiences, there are certainly ways of making it work. So if it isn't working in your institution, it's not, you have to throw up your hands and go, it's impossible. The reality is a lot of people have worked out how to crack that piece open. Part of it has to do with who's teaching. Part of it has yeah. to do with who are being presented as role models, who's being presented as career opportunities. And no small part of it has to do with what are the messages that come more tacitly. What's in our movies? What's on TV? What's in our games? What's the stuff around you? You know, How many times do you hear the operating assumption being a scientist is a he? Yeah. There's a bit that says, you know, this isn't just a matter of what's in our curriculum, it's what's in our social imagination. And so if the question is how do we have the most diverse participation in STEM, it's about how do we shape the purpose of STEM in our imaginations at a cultural level, how do we value different voices and lived experiences, how do we ensure that our faculties teaching it reflect the populations we want participating in it, and how do we talk about why it's important that isn't simply a kind of because it is <laughs> yeah. you know, what's it going to contribute what's its value why does it matter why is being this going to do good things are all forms of meaning making we need to stage so um, we're just about out of time but one final question after you know so many years of asking questions and being a provocateur you now have your institute at ANU and a real opportunity to deliver something different in education. Your first students are preparing to come. I know you've, you've, you've had a wide call out to get students to come and join you there. Do you have any sense in you know, five years' time, ten years' time, what it is you're trying to build 
and what those students will have when they emerge from their experience of working with you and your team there. Well, I have hope. I'm not sure if they're ideas yet. <laughs> so for me, the starting proposition of the work here was to say we are sitting in a critical moment in the evolution and development of technology where artificial intelligence technologies are moving off compute platforms and going into the built world. So think smart cars and drones and smart elevators and smart buildings. And that whole move of artificial intelligence to get to scale is one that will change the way the world works. And for me... I don't think we yet have a, a toolkit to handle that. We don't yet know how to take AI safely to scale. And so the kind of raison d'etre or value proposition of the Institute here at the ANU is about doing precisely that work. Can we build a new academic discipline or applied science that would help us manage the machinery of AI to scale safely for humans and the planet? So... What do I hope five, ten years from now? A couple of things. I'd like to have named the applied science because I'm tired of talking about it with a proper noun. Yeah. Um, I hope that what we're creating here is the first cohort of practitioners who will know how to help that happen and who will keep humans and humanity in the loop of our technical futures, who will know how to ask hard questions, who will know how to be in teams of people who are building the future and be the constant, in some ways, guardians of that future for all of us. So if we do it right, what we are creating here is a cohort of people to help make the future safe for us to live in. Well, you're one of our great original thinkers and (laughs) provocateurs, and that's a fantastic challenge. And we all wish you every success with that, and we'll be watching your progress with interest. Thanks for your time today. Thanks always for your ideas and your insight, and uh, we value your time. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student hyphen podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.